Good morning. My name is David Hershey. Uh, my family and I attend here, if you don't know me, and uh, we volunteer in different ways around the church. I work over at uh, Penn State Berks in campus ministry and occasionally give Tim a week off by standing up here and sharing. And that is a clip from uh, the long-running British sci-fi television series, Doctor Who. I have to admit that the last number of times Tim has asked me to speak, I've always wanted to show a Doctor Who clip to share my appreciation for campy, nerdy British sci-fi, and finally I found one that I thought fit at least a little bit. So the Doctor is uh, the one character there. He is a time-traveling alien, and his little blue uh, police box is actually a spaceship and a time machine all wrapped up into one. So in the show, in the series, he often travels with human companions, and they go just wherever they want. In this episode, they visit uh, the great painter Vincent Van Gogh, or I'm not sure if this is how they say it in England, but Van Gogh. I'm going to say Van Gogh just because that rolls off the tongue easier for me. And they have an adventure, and then at the end of the show, if you know anything about uh, Vincent Van Gogh, the painter, he did not experience success in his lifetime. He wasn't famous. He wasn't well-known. I think he sold maybe like one painting. He also uh, struggled with just all kinds of different psychological uh, challenges, uh, issues, and things that if he lived today, he would have been able to receive treatment for that simply wasn't available to him back then. He famously uh, suffered from depression, fits of rage. He actually cut off part of his own ear in one instance. And uh, what I think is interesting in this clip is the, I guess, mental experiment of how they take Vincent Van Gogh from his time and they bring him into the future, into our time, where they visit a museum and he is able to see how he is appreciated a hundred years after his death. He has, we could call it a vision, we could call it a miracle, whatever you want to call it, just this idea that somebody who struggles with all these things, doesn't think anybody likes their work, their paintings, all of a sudden realizes that he is considered one of the, the best, greatest artists of all time. At the end of the clip, as Vincent walks away, he says that this is going to change everything. That he's going to wake up tomorrow a new man. He's going to paint all these new and better paintings. And as the, if, if we kept watching it, uh, they actually return to the future and Amy believes that they're gonna have, they would have changed history as they do sometimes in the show. She thinks that because of what they've done for Vincent, there's going to be hundreds of new paintings because historically, in, in real life, he takes his own life around the age of 36 or 37. So Amy thinks that now he's going to live for decades and paint hundreds of masterpieces. Well, when they get back, of course, to the museum, there's nothing new. He still takes his own life. Seemingly nothing has changed. And I think it's interesting to contrast this with another very famous story that you probably watched an adaptation of around Christmas, uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Some ways it's very similar, right? You know the story of A Christmas Carol. Greedy, uh, miser, Ebenezer Scrooge gets a vision. He's visited by three spirits. They show him all these sorts of things. Again, call it a vision, call it a miracle, call it what you will. But you know the end of the story, that Ebenezer wakes up on Christmas morning with a new chance, a new man, a new way of living. And he declares that everything's going to be different now, just as Vincent did in, in, in Doctor Who, right? But 
the story tells us, we don't get to see how it plays out, but we're told by, by Dickens at the end of every story that, yes, Ebenezer Scrooge did turn his life around, that he kept Christmas better than anybody, that he was generous and kind and loving, and this just turned his life completely. So we have these two, I guess, fictionalized stories, one of a real person, but, you know, fictional takeoff of it, one of an obviously fictional story, and they both have this sort of vision, miracle experience, and they both declare they're going to change. One of them does, one of them doesn't. And call me a cynic, but I tend to think that the Van Gogh story is probably more realistic to real life. Because, at least for me, and I imagine for many of us, change doesn't just happen like that. Maybe there are a few of you that you can just declare, I'm going to be different now and everything changes. But I think, and even part of me thinks that like, if we had a Christmas Carol Part 2 or something, or if we got a picture of old Ebenezer Scrooge, maybe in a couple years down the line, like it's easy to be generous after that vision happens. But I, I have to think that at some point in his life, Ebenezer's looking at the bottom line, thinking about being generous, and he's like, really, do I want to keep on giving? It doesn't just go away. That greed of his life for decades can't just go away that quickly, can it? It makes me think of New Year's Eve, because it's New Year's Eve. Uh, but you probably, I mean, you probably watched, um, you probably made New Year's resolutions, or every year maybe you watch the ball drop on Times Square. Maybe you've been to Times Square. And it's kind of fun to watch them interview these people in Times Square who are at different levels of um, inebriation. And they're all, they all say the same things year after year, right? Like, oh, the new year, it's a, it's, a, it's a time for a change. It's a new beginning. We can be different. We can start over again. And people make resolutions that, again, just like Van Gogh, just like Scrooge, it's all going to be different tomorrow. But again, we all know the story, right? Weeks go by, maybe days, maybe hours for some of us, and those resolutions fall by the wayside. By mid-January, we're just back to the way we've always been. And it begs the question, what makes one person's uh, commitment stick and what makes another person's not? Well, this morning I have the, I guess, privilege of wrapping up our Christmas series here at, at Koinos. Tim's been taking us through a series we titled Christmas Playlist. He's been taking us through uh, the stories of Jesus' birth in the Gospel of Luke and connecting those stories of Jesus' birth with different popular, uh, well-known Christmas carols, Christmas hymns that you often heard here sung around Christmas time. This morning we're going to look at Joy to the World. And Christmas is a season of, of joy. I mean, if you have kids or if you remember being a kid, I mean, my kids were the picture of joy. They could barely fall asleep. They were so excited to wake up in the morning. I mean, just joy fills Christmas. If you've been around here, if you've been re- heard the story somewhere else of Jesus' birth, just the joy of Mary and the shepherds and everything, it's, it's joy. You know the song, Joy to the World, probably. The first two verses go... Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. So just this idea that with the coming of Jesus, all of nature is singing. Rocks and hills and plains are crying out in joy. Well, the story I'm going to read this morning from Luke's gospel takes place shortly after Jesus' birth. 
uh, Jesus' family, Mary and Joseph, were Jewish people, and there were certain uh, Jewish rituals that they had to perform upon the birth of a baby. So uh, a little after Jesus' birth, they would take the baby Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem, and they would offer sacrifices that were, again, required by law. Uh, We read that Mary and Joseph offer the smallest, most meager sacrifice allowed by the law, which points to their own uh, poverty. And then I'm going to pick up the story at that point in Luke chapter 2, verse uh, 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was, a right, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So we meet this man named Simeon. Simeon had or we, are, we learn, is waiting for God to save Israel. If you remember, if you don't know, uh, at this time, the Israelites, the land of Israel, city of Jerusalem, is ruled by the Roman Empire. So there's a far off in, in the city of Rome, there's an emperor who is in control uh, in the area where Jesus lives. There's a king, King Herod, from the Christmas story. Uh, he's not a free, I mean, he's a king who answers to a greater king in Rome. Either way, whether it's the emperor in Rome... King Herod, the soldiers marching around the streets, keeping the peace. All of these people are not welcomed by, uh, by the Jews in that land. They want them to be gone. And a lot of the Jewish people are, are waiting for God to do something. They believe that in the past, years and years ago, God had acted and saved them. And they're waiting for, again, God to act in some way through some person to just kick out King Herod and the Roman soldiers and to bring in some sort of good and just king to rule over them. This is what Simeon and a lot of his countrymen were waiting for. We learn that Simeon, though, had received some sort of uh, message or promise from the Holy Spirit that he's not going to die until he sees the one that God is sending to bring this salvation. So we don't know how long Simeon waited. Like, I have this picture in my mind of Simeon waking up day after day after day, maybe week after week, maybe year after year, and just trudging through the crowded streets of Jerusalem towards the temple, taking his usual spot, maybe even praying, asking God, is, is today the day, God? Is today the day? Maybe tomorrow? And then all of a sudden, one day he's sitting there, and he hears, feels something. A nudge, a voice. Picking up the story in Luke in 2.27. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the customs of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Now, I read that, and and my response is, I wonder what Mary did in response to this. Because if you've ever had children, or if you know anything about children, one thing that you don't do is just take somebody's baby out of their arms. Uh, Especially if you're a stranger. Even if you're not a stranger, not a good idea. So I just read this. I just imagine this random guy walking up and just grabbing the baby Jesus. And it doesn't say like what Mary and Joseph did. Although a part of me is starting to think that if you follow along the story of all the stuff that's happened to Mary, maybe she's getting used to this kind of weird stuff happening. Like maybe when they take the baby Jesus, she's just like, here we go again. Like, all right, whatever. But again, we don't know. I, I, I think it's funny. But going on, Simeon says, uh, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles 
and the glory of your people Israel. So Simeon holds up Jesus, praises God. Uh, the child, this, this baby that he's holding in his hands is the one that's going to bring salvation. Uh, kind of cool that the salvation is not just for only one group of people, the Jewish people, but he says it's for everybody, it's for the Gentiles. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, right? This is the celebration. God is acting and we can all be happy. Picking up in verse 33. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the rise and the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple and worshipped him, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So we see in these verses uh, that it's not all joy. Simeon talks about a sword piercing Mary's soul. He talks about not just the, the rising, but also the falling of many in Israel. And this we could really read as foreshadowing of what Jesus' life is going to entail. Because if you know about Jesus' later life, when he began his teaching and his ministry and his work in the world, a lot of people celebrated that and found joy and, and just, it was wonderful to them. Uh, but also a lot of people were opposed to Jesus. Ultimately, he dies on a cross and his mother Mary uh, is there even at that last moment of his life. So again, this is foreshadowing that there's not just joy and goodness coming in Jesus' life, but there's going to be a little bit of darkness and suffering too. We also see that Simeon is not alone in recognizing uh, who the baby Jesus is, but this woman named Anna, uh, who's been spending a lot of time at the temple, years and years praying, maybe like Simeon, she's waiting uh, to see God's chosen one, and she comes up and also praises, uh, praises God for the baby. So we see joy surrounding uh, the birth of Jesus, the hope that things will be new, that the world's going to be different. That change can happen. Simeon had been waiting for maybe decades. And finally, he can find joy because Jesus is here. Simeon's people have been waiting for centuries for God to act. And now, they can celebrate that Jesus is here. All of humanity, in some way, has been waiting since the creation of the world for Jesus to come. And now we all celebrate to this day that Jesus is here. Of course, in the story, there's more waiting because he's a baby. He doesn't go out and start doing miracles and healing people and preaching quite yet. Uh, there's a couple more decades of silence, which I think is, might be hard on old Simeon because he probably didn't live to see Jesus actually as an adult. He had to um, have the faith that this baby he saw and that speaking of the Holy Spirit that it really was uh, what was happening. But eventually Jesus grows up and goes and does his ministry. And again, he, he preaches, he teaches, he heals people, he feeds people, he casts out demons, ultimately dies on the cross, rises again to new life. The early Christians, Jesus' followers, go into the world and, and announce that there's a new king, that the Savior is here, Jesus reigns. There's another verse in Joy to the World uh, that begins, He rules the world with truth and grace. To this day, we celebrate as, as Christians, those of us who consider ourselves Christians, that Jesus 
reigns, that God is in control, whatever terminology you want to use for it. But forgive my cynicism at times for reading a line like that, he rules the world with truth and grace, and responding, does he? Like, really? New Testament scholar N.T. Wright touches on my own cynicism here when he writes, many will snort the obvious objection. Not sure why they snorted, they can't just say it, whatever. Uh, It certainly doesn't look as though he's in charge, or if he is, he's making a proper mess of it. Just turn on the news, look out the window. When millions of people in our world still don't have clean water, when millions of people struggle to find enough food, when sexual abuse, human trafficking, and all kinds of other evils and sufferings run as rampant as they seemingly always have, when nations and individuals still seek peace through violence as they always have, it's kind of hard to, at least at times, to believe that Jesus really is That he really does rule the world. That joy and that hope that we experience at Christmas, the joy and the hope that Simeon and Anna have, it kind of fades away as the years pass by. The miracles become a memory, and we wonder at God's apparent silence in the face of a world of evil and suffering. Just in a very basic, like literally today, I mean, the joys and the celebration of Christmas quickly fade as we get into the dreary January days. And I've said to people before, and this strikes at me because I've, I've, I've been open with the idea that I'm, I would love to see some sort of miracle. Like I would love in my life to see something that was unequivocally like no explanation, but God did that. Because I have faith, but I struggle with doubt, like I think many of us, if we're honest. And wouldn't it be great just to see something? But when I step back and think about that, I also have to ask myself, if I did see that thing, that I want, whatever it is, I don't know, would it change me? Or would I be like Vincent in that episode and, you know, forget about it within a couple days? Because when you read, again, when you read the stories of Jesus, if you take time sometime and read the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life, Lots of people saw Jesus do all kinds of fantastic and amazing things. And lots of people still doubted. There's even an amazing line at the end of, I think it's Matthew's uh, gospel, Matthew's biography of Jesus. After Jesus rises from the dead, and he's talking to people. So these people have seen Jesus hanging on a cross, blood dripping, just all the torture that goes along with that, put in the tomb. And now he's alive again, and he's talking to them. And it actually says, some of them doubted. And I read that, I'm like, how could you doubt in that moment? But the idea that you can makes me wonder if seeing a miracle is all it's cracked up to be. I suspect that if Simeon and Anna like, had a TARDIS time machine, and they could travel to be here with us today, and I shared with them my desire to see something fantastic, they might point out to me that seeing a miracle is not really the point. I think if Simeon and Anna were here today, they might encourage me to remember what God has spoken in the past. To remember that the stories of Christmas are not just encouraging fairy tales that we tell ourselves to make the cold winter months a little warmer. But they're stories of what really happened, of God acting in the world, that Jesus really was born, lived, and rose again. 
Simeon and Anna would remind me that, again, God made that promise to Simeon, but I don't think God reminded Simeon every single day. Simeon had to live his life going to the temple and waiting, and he was living his life in that waiting, remembering the promise that God had made. God made promises to all sorts of people throughout, throughout the ages, including Simeon and Anna, and God fulfilled those promises in Jesus. And a big, I think, part of hearing what God is doing today is recognizing the light has shined in the darkness. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. I think Simeon and Anna, along with telling me to remember, would encourage me to uh, persevere and listen for God in my everyday life. I think as we remember, we're given eyes to see if we want to see. The uh, French philosopher or theologian or writer, Blaise Pascal, wrote, There is enough light for those who only desire to see and enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition. So I believe as we remember what God has done and as we look around us that that we can change, that we can hear God speaking. That life is lived in the day-by-day, the small moments, and that's where growth happens. That God may speak to us in all sorts of ways we're not even ready for, or we may not even understand. Maybe you're someone who likes nature. You go for hikes in the woods. You would say that you've seen, you've heard God speak to you when you see the sun rising over a beautiful mountain scene or when you hear the waves lapping on the beach. Maybe God speaks to you through music, through books, through poetry. I think Simeon and Anna would remind me that God speaks to us through other people. Christians believe that uh, we as individuals and as a community are filled with God's Holy Spirit. That we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, if you will. So one of the reasons why we don't think it's necessary to take a trip on the other side of the world to visit a temple somewhere, a building, is because we don't believe that God is confined to a building. We believe that God lives in each of us. And, what that mean, and the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' early followers, even said that Christians, we are the temple of God. And what this means, maybe this is going to be a cheap plug, but if you want to hear God speaking, maybe one of your New Year's resolutions could be to join a navigating or journeying, I still call them community groups, whatever they're called. Maybe joining one of those, sitting around with other people, talking, reading scripture is a way that you could hear God speaking to you in the everyday. And I think we may be surprised along those same lines uh, of some of the people God uh, speaks to us through. I was struck this week, I saw uh, Pope Francis gave, I guess, his yearly or whatever Christmas sermon. Uh, I call him Pope Frank because we're we're buddies. But uh, I read his uh, Christmas sermon, and it actually touched on some of what I want to talk about this morning. So I want to share some of this because he talks about how uh, we see and hear Jesus, we see and hear God in the voice of, of children, of the least of these around us. So the Pope said, We see Jesus in the children of the Middle East who continue to suffer. We see Jesus in the faces of Syrian children still marked by the war that, in these years, has caused such bloodshed in that country. We see Jesus in the children of Iraq, wounded and torn by the conflicts that country has experienced in the last 15 years. And in the children of Yemen, where there is ongoing conflict that has largely been forgotten. We see Jesus in the children of Africa, especially those suffering in South Sudan and Somalia and and other places. We see Jesus in the children 
Uh, worldwide, wherever peace and security are threatened by the danger of tensions and new conflicts. We see Jesus in the children of unemployed parents who struggle to offer their children a secure and peaceful future. And in those whose childhood has been robbed and who from a very young age have been forced to work or to be enrolled as soldiers by unscrupulous mercenaries. We see Jesus in the many children forced to leave their countries to travel alone in inhuman conditions and who become an easy target for, target for human traffickers. So maybe it's not, I would challenge myself, that in the dark days, it's not that God's not speaking. Maybe God is speaking in the voice of children throughout the world. And if that's the case, then I feel that we have a sort of responsibility to help in whatever way we can. When I was in college, I think I was in college, maybe early 20s, I don't remember. But uh, I felt moved to start sponsoring a child through uh, Compassion International. You may be familiar with an organization like Compassion International. Uh, what you do basically is uh, you send, I don't know, $35, $40 a month to sponsor a child in a country. Uh, my first child I sponsored was in the Dominican Republic. Now I sponsor a child in Haiti because my first child like, aged out of the program. He grew up. And the money you send, you get the, the child gets like food and clothing. They get education, all, all kinds of things, uh, just help they need. Uh, a couple years ago, my wife Emily and I had the opportunity to go to Guatemala where she was sponsoring a child. Uh, we chaperoned a school trip with her school, and then we took our own little detour to visit uh, the community and to visit our child's, her child's family. And it was amazing. We got to meet the child she sponsored. We got to see her house. We got to meet her family. We got to go over to the school where she went, meet some of the teachers, see some of the other children, and really just get a, a firsthand account of how the money we send is making a difference in this, in this community. But I remember, though, when I first started sponsoring a child through Compassion, one of my friends who I worked with at, uh, at CVS, I think it was, uh, he told me flat out that donating money to Compassion was a waste of money and a dumb thing to do. Now, my friend was also someone who would have, was, we could say was a very outspoken in his atheism. And obviously not all atheists would think that that's a dumb thing to do. I'm not going to like make a sort of blanket statement about that. But I would say that my friend was being pretty consistent, I would say, with his view of a godless world. Because within a godless world, if, if the reason why in those dark days it seems like God may not be speaking... If it seems like that, if we were tempted to say, well, maybe there's just, God's just not there. If that's the case, then I don't think we really have any responsibility to help the children that the Pope mentioned in his, in his speech. Especially when it's hard on us. I mean, if the universe is silent, if humans are just another part of nature, why would you send your hard-earned money to help some kid on the other side of the world that you may never meet? I mean, yeah, like if you have a short, miserable life to live before you die and it's all over, you, like, you may want to be kind and give money to people around you because they're your friends and neighbors and, and their happiness or their liking you might contribute to your own enjoyment of your temporary, dismal life. But, I mean, even in that, you're only really doing it because you want to get something out of it. Why would you give money to someone when you get literally nothing out of it? And that's one of the reasons why, as tempted as I may be in, in times of doubt to wonder, you know, maybe God's silent because God's just not there. I don't think I could ever go 
the whole way there. Because for any problems that might solve, in my opinion, and for what it's worth, that then leads to a whole bunch of other problems. Because in the end, if the world is a godless world, if you donate money in 100 years, 200 years, nobody's going to care because there's no memory of it. Even if they build a statue to you, I mean, not like you're going to be around to see it. And if you're selfish and live a self-centered life, if you're Ebenezer Scrooge without the Reformation part of it, again, people hate you, but what difference does it make? You were, had a lot of money and you lived, a, you lived the life you thought you should live. So if the universe is silent and this all just ends, I would say you may as well just enjoy life and look at something that Pope Francis says about those children and just be like, well, I'm glad I live here and have a comfortable life. Too bad for them, but I'm going to enjoy my life. But if... God has spoken, if God has acted in Jesus, if God is still speaking for those who have ears to hear today, if God is speaking through these children, I believe as Christians then we have a duty to help in some way. I would say God's action in the world changes everything. When I read uh, Joy to the World, when I looked at the lyrics, I used to be bothered by the first line in the song, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. It didn't sound right to me. I don't know, maybe I'm the one with the bad grammar or not, but for some reason it always seemed like it should say, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Like, that just sounded better. But as I was reading the different lines of this song, preparing for this morning, it struck me that all of the verses in the song are present tense. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns, as in currently reigns. He rules the world now, today. And with the emphasis on that present, uh, it got me thinking that when we talk about joy to the world, joy, joy is not just a, a temporary feeling that we have akin to happiness. Joy is not just that feeling that on Christmas morning when your kids wake up and they're so excited and they're joyful and then 10 minutes later they're more interested in not playing with the toys they just got because they want to fight each other or whatever. Like, then they're not joy. Like, that's not joy. That's just the emotion of happiness or whatever. Joy is the trust, the belief, the knowledge that everything is working out. Joy is the trust that the light is winning even when the darkness looks like, looks like it. The light is winning even when it doesn't look like it, even when it looks like the darkness is winning. Another, another verse in, in Joy of the World says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the, cor the curse is found. The joy of Christmas, the hope of Christmas, is that Jesus did not just come once a long time ago, did some stuff that are, is kind of irrelevant. And it's not even just that in some way, for those who have eyes to see that, that God is still speaking now, but it's also this hope that Jesus has come to remove the curse, to, to bring healing to the world far as the curse is found, and there's still a hope that's going to happen. As uh, the mystic, medieval mystic Julian of Norwich said, uh, all will be well, all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. That's one of my favorite quotes. Just this hope that there's more to come, that those children that are suffering, the people that are suffering in our lives, whatever the darkness may, t whatever that may look like, in the day-to-day, -day, that's not the end of the story. That there's hope because the light is shining. And we can have joy in the midst of that. So as we 
remember, as we persevere, as we listen, as we look, all of this, I believe, then should move us towards actions. I believe another way that God's silence is broken in the world, in addition to listening to those around us, listening to the children we mentioned a minute ago, is also in the acts of people who, as we learned a moment ago, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If God is living in us, as we go forth in the world to bring good news, to bring joy, we can show, we can break God's silence. Earlier I read a uh, quote from N.T. Wright, and I want to read the rest of it now because he keeps saying more. He said, as you may remember, many will snort. I think that's still funny, snort. The obvious objection. It certainly doesn't look as though he's in charge, or if he is, he's making a proper mess of it. But that misses the point. The early Christians knew the world was still a mess, but they announced, like messengers going off on behalf of a global company, that a new CEO had taken charge. They discovered through their own various callings how his new way of running things was to be worked out. It's not a new idea that the world is a mess. It's not a new idea that as joy fades, darkness may seem to take over in our lives. The question we're left with is, as we remember and as we listen, as we anticipate what God is going to do, will we act? So looking ahead to 2018, what can we do to experience, to build joy in the midst of the darkness? May we be people who choose acts of love and gratitude and kindness. May we choose to bring beauty into the world. Paint a painting. Sing a song. Build. Create something beautiful. May we choose to shine our light and joy in our daily lives. Teach a child to read, whether that's your own child reading to your toddler before bedtime, the same story you've read three times that day, and you would rather read any story but that one, but they want to hear it again, so you read it because you love them. Or maybe that means volunteering at a school that would love to have you come and read to children you don't even know for an hour a week. May we bring joy and light into the world in 2018 by doing something as simple as cooking a meal. Maybe that means cooking a meal for your spouse and your family, your kids, or your friends with love. Or maybe that means cooking a meal for someone you barely know who just had a baby or lost a loved one. Or you just know they don't have, they, they need some help and a meal will be a great gift to them. May we bring joy and peace into the world as we listen to those around us. Listening to the words of encouragement. Listening to words of need. Listening as if we're hearing the words of God. May we bring joy and peace and love to the world in 2018 by speaking. Speaking words of encouragement. Or maybe even swallowing our pride and speaking the words of need to those around us. Giving them an opportunity to show love to us. May we choose the light each day to work for change, knowing that change does not come in a moment because we see three spirits or travel in a time machine, but that change comes through small choices each day, again, choosing to see and hear what is happening, what God is doing. May we know that joy comes in strength, as Mother Teresa said. Joy is strength through life, listening and trusting and growing in God and all the little things. And in all of these things, may we have faith that God is speaking in 2018 
In the same way that God was speaking to Simeon and Anna and so many others. And may all of our years, may your year be joyful. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this day, this year. Thank you for the joy that comes with the birth of Jesus and his life, teachings and his resurrection. I pray, Lord, that as we go through this coming year, that even when it doesn't seem like it, whether it's things we see in the news or things we experience in our own life, in our own life I pray that when it doesn't seem like you're there or that you're in control, that we would hear your voice, whether through a, another person, through whatever it may be. Give us eyes to see that you are working and give us hope to see that there's a better day coming. I pray, Lord, that we would be people also of action who uh, go into the world to bring the joy and the love that we've experienced to those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.